Welcome to Ipsa Dixit. I'm Matthew Bruckner, Associate Professor at Howard University School of Law. My guests today are Andrea Bob Stark and Jeff Walsh, both staff attorneys at the National Consumer Law Center. Thanks for coming to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Right, so we're here to talk about um, your work on uh, penal debt and bankruptcy, in particular, uh, an article called Sentence to a Life of Debt. It's time for a reassessment of how bankruptcy law intersects with fines and fees to keep people in debt. So can you give us the, you know, um, the elevator pitch, the high level overview of your article? Sure. So I'll start. Um as many listeners probably know, bankruptcy is an option to provide a fresh start for borrowers who need it most. Uh, if a borrower files a Chapter 7 uh, bankruptcy, for example, which is, a, which is a bankruptcy for low to moderate income individuals, they can discharge most of their debts. In a Chapter 13, they can make payments toward their debts and get caught up on certain debts and eventually get a discharge of those debts. Um, One big exception though for this discharge is criminal justice debt. And this is, you know, these are fees and fines that are assessed to a criminal defendant. And it could be a probation fee, certain costs of prosecution, booking fees, I mean, there are all kinds of fees and fines that can be assessed to a defendant. And a lot of these are not dischargeable in a bankruptcy. Uh, And in 1986, the Supreme Court came out with a case called Kelly v. Robinson, which was essentially a case about a person who was accused of welfare fraud for a certain amount of money. And then the court ordered the person to pay back that exact same amount of money uh, in restitution for that uh, out for that crime, and so the Supreme Court and Kelly, after Kelly or in the decision of Kelly, made it much harder for uh, debtors to discharge criminal justice debt in a bankruptcy because they found that any fee or fine that is part of a criminal sentencing order would be considered non-dischargeable. And so this could be anything, regardless of whether it's related to the crime or not. So we've seen sentencing orders that include uh, monies for domestic violence compensation fund, for example, when there's been no domestic violence allegation or nothing like that in the actual case, a child care facility fee when the, the, the defendant did not use a child care facility or doesn't even have children, a law library user fee. So we've just seen, you know, all kinds of fees and fines in these sentencing orders that are not dischargeable. And so what this article looks at is what has happened with criminal prosecutions and the criminal justice system since Kelly, since the 1980s. Um, There's been a surge of incarcerations Uh, From 1980 to 1990, there was a 130% increase in incarcerations. And the U.S. is the highest in the world for incarcerated individuals at 2.3 million individuals who are incarcerated in our country. And with this uh, mass incarceration came a huge need for money to fund the criminal justice system. So there was a huge need for money to fund prisons, 
not only prisons, but courtrooms, prosecutors, public defenders, administrators. And so states and counties became very reliant on fees and fines to fund this system. And they placed the burden of these fees and fines on those who could least afford it, the criminal defendant. Uh, And so this also had a very disparate impact on communities of color and low-income communities. And we saw this come to light in the mid-1990s with the U.S. Justice Department's investigation of the Ferguson, Missouri Police Department uh, following the shooting of Michael Brown. And the, uh, the police department was found to have maximized its revenue through fees and fines disproportionately on Black defendants. Uh, This was a prime example during this time about how fees and fines were used to fund the system and how this was disproportionately put onto communities of color. So this article looks at the change since Kelly was decided over the past decades for states and localities to fund this mass incarceration with a staggering increase in criminal justice fees and fines. And it really wants people to stop and think that that it's about time we reevaluate our current bankruptcy code that limits dischargeability of this debt and and really does not provide a fresh start for everyone. Um, Everyone should get a true fresh start, especially for defendants who have served their time, who have completed their sentence uh, and, and now are trying to get back into Um, society and trying to get back on track and get their life together, they deserve a fresh start as well as any other debtor in bankruptcy. And so this article looks at that and then provides some recommendations to to get to that goal. Thanks. So what I'm understanding is that, you know, there's been this explosion in fines and fees, uh, disparately impacting certain groups of people. um, And the solution is to sort of um, to fix this in bankruptcy, um, do you have specific and sort of concrete um, proposals for change uh, that you'd like to see? You know, I know you've written a couple of pieces on this, uh, and so whether in this article or others, we definitely do have some concrete suggestions. I'm going to let Jeff take over here and uh, and explain those. Sure, we've. <clears throat> We've included in our article some discussion about the legislation that Senator Warren and Representative Nadler have been proposing basically over the last two years. And this is something that's fairly consistent with proposals that NCLC has put forward also. And these proposals look at at, at two major ways of dealing with amendments to the bankruptcy code provisions that restrict discharge of criminal of criminal justice debt. <clears throat> One is to deal with this issue about separating fines and penalties from costs and fees. And we've looked at things like taking, looking at the perspective of revenue generation that has really taken over um, the motivation for a lot of the costs and fees that are assessed as part of um, 
criminal judgments. And we've encouraged an a- analogizing that to the treatment of tax debts, where tax debts are also a primary source of funding state and local government. And under the bankruptcy code, most tax debts, whether owed to state, local, or the federal government, are dischargeable after three years. And most consumers routinely discharge tax debts in either Chapter 7 or Chapter 13 cases based on that waiting period of three years. That gives the government a substantial period of time to use the very extensive resources that it has available to collect on this debt. Government agencies can very easily conduct garnishments. They can seize federal benefits. Um, In the case of criminal justice debt, they can imprison people for not paying debts when when they're due under, under sentencing orders. So we think that the analogy to the treatment of taxes is something that that ought to be considered. Um, the Warren-Nadler bill has a provision in it that would allow the government to show that someone could still afford to pay the debt even after three years have passed. And there are kind of pros and cons for keeping that, that type of uh, test still in, in an amended code. Um, we think that there are some problems in the implementation of these kinds of uh, of means testing. There, there are already provisions in the bankruptcy code that restrict Chapter 7 discharge, for example, to individuals who don't have the money available to pay a substantial amount on their debts. So we think that there are enough protections built into the means testing system for Chapter 7 already so that we could address that concern about people who can afford to pay. And in Chapter 13 cases, the the borrowers have to commit to corp supervision of their of their monthly payments over a three to five year plan. So there's a system in effect to make sure that someone's paying any disposable income they have to their to their creditors. So we think that some sort of automatic discharge that's time based um, would be appropriate. And the other aspect of these proposals is to allow for the automatic discharge of fees and costs that are essentially revenue generating. And for that three-year period before there would be some right to an automatic discharge, the, the government would certainly have the ability to collect on the basic statutory fines and penalties, things that are automatically imposed by a statute for violation of a criminal provision that aren't revenue generating, that they would be treated differently. And the proposals would put the burden essentially on the the sentencing order to make clear um, what charges are fines and penalties and what charges are revenue generating fees and costs that are assessed on criminal defendants. That's been a big problem that we've seen that people can't figure out which is which. So there would be a presumption for dischargeability um, if they're not clearly delineated that way. And to be clear, you want to separate uh, revenue generating um, assessments from penalties and treat them differently based on the purpose of the, um, the fees or penalties. Is that right? 
Yes, and we think that's consistent with the treatment of, of taxation debts. Great. Andrew? Yeah, and, and I would add to that, I, I, I you know, so it's it, compared to, for example, credit card debt or medical debt or rental debt that that can be discharged, you know, these are unsecured debts versus like a mortgage or a car debt, that secured debt that, you know, even with some caveats, all of that debt can be discharged eventually. Um, but cr- criminal justice debt, it's not secured debt and it can't be discharged. Most of it can, some of it can still be, but most of it cannot be discharged. But there's this sense in society, I think, that, uh criminal defendants shouldn't be, quote, let off the hook, unquote. And there's this kind of moral hazard argument that if they are, they won't be deterred from committing future crimes. And that's just not true. In fact, you know, burdening them with this debt uh, forces them to be even more cash strapped when they're trying to get back on track. And they have to pay this burdensome debt uh, it, it, it tends to have the opposite effect and might even drive them into, they might not have any further option than to commit further crime to pay this debt. So I think it has the opposite effect as, as some, you know, some, some people are saying with this moral hazard and deterrent. Um, and it, in this way, it acts kind of like a regressive tax. Uh, and it's applied uniformly, but it takes a much larger chunk or percentage of, of income from lower income communities of color than from higher income white earners. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it makes sense to, te- to treat it like a tax debt uh, it, it, because it has become somewhat of a tax debt, like a regressive tax. And, you know, most states and federal income tax debts, like Jeff said, can be discharged after three years without showing an inability to pay. There's no moral hazard there. And so I do think it makes sense to treat it more like a tax debt. Great. Uh, so you, you both discussed this, uh, and Jeff also brought up the, um, the CBRA, the Nadler-Warren bill. Now, I know in that bill, they uh, strike um, 523A8 for the non-dischargeability of student loan debt entirely, uh, and in A7, which is the penal debt, they um, limit the scope of the non-dischargeability somewhat. Um, now, most of the analogies you've drawn have been to tax debt. I'm curious about your thoughts, you know, why analogize to tax debt rather than student loan debt, which is being, at least in this, this particular bill, is being proposed to be um, completely dischargeable again. I, I think tax debt is is probably the most analogous because these in in many many cases the fees and charges that are being assessed are really serving the purpose of a tax they are funding not only in in many cases they're funding not only the court systems themselves and the the criminal justice aspects of the court system but they're also funding um, general government operations in states and as andrea pointed out it's an extremely regressive tax along those lines. Um, the problem that we've seen also with, for example, the student loan discharge is that the way the code is structured now, there is what's called this undue hardship exception, where 
you can potentially get a discharge of a student loan debt if you meet this standard of showing that having to pay the student loan debt would create an undue hardship for, for you and your family. And our experience with that type of standard is just that it's it's really impossible for individual consumer debtors to meet it. It's been construed by courts to allow a bankruptcy court to look at past conduct and future conduct. And what's a hardship is also very ambiguous. So we don't think that sets out the best model for for application in the criminal justice debt area. Great. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so I know one of the one of the things you talk about, maybe actually maybe I'll ask you to can you give, I know that some of you, uh, some of your papers have an example, uh, and you talked about a little bit about this, Andrea, but um, so you talked some about um, the problems with proving what type of debt is and is not dischargeable. You talked about um, the sort of seems muddy sometimes. There's a lot of litigation about, you know, is this fine um, a non-dischargeable penalty or is it a dischargeable penalty? So you talk a little bit both about the sort of current state of um, the world, but also, um, you know, you talked a little bit about requiring the state to affirmatively establish that their um, that a particular debt would be non-dischargeable. So you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, what do fines and fees and sentencing orders look like now, and uh, and what would you like it to look like? Well, I, I, I could talk about that. Um, you know, in terms of the outcome from from Kelly, the the outcome has been to really place all of the emphasis on what a sentencing order says. You know, Kelly is basically saying that whatever a judge includes in a sentencing order in a criminal case is going to be non-dischargeable. And that's really not textually consistent with what the bankruptcy code says the bankruptcy code says that the it doesn't mention anything about sentencing orders it says that these fines and penalties are non-dischargeable um, provided they're paid to the government and for the benefit of the government and they don't serve as compensation for some actual pecuniary loss that the government suffered and Kelly involved a case of a welfare fraud conviction where the defendant was found to have received basically $10,000 in welfare benefits inappropriately, and she was ordered to pay that $10,000 back to the state. So it was clearly restitution for a pecuniary loss that the government incurred. And the Supreme Court basically said, we're not going to look at that express language in the text, but if the judge put it in the sentencing order, they meant to punish somebody and punishment means it's not going to be uh, dischargeable in a bankruptcy case. So what's, um, what's really been confusing, I think, and made it difficult to apply that standard is that the, the courts have not only allowed, have not only ordered the non-dischargeability where something is in a sentencing order, but you get into these situations where costs and fees are imposed after the sentencing order. They're not expressly in the sentencing order, but they're somehow involved in the criminal case. And that might be incarceration fees or probation supervision fees, things like that. Um, 
most courts have been holding that they're integrated enough into the sentencing order that they're still going to be non-dischargeable too. Also, restitution debts that are payable directly to private people who were harmed by the conduct, um, they're not payable to the government and to the benefit of the government, but courts have been holding that those are non-dischargeable as well. And that's made it extremely difficult to figure out this area where there might be some fees or costs that were assessed at some point after the sentencing order. They may have involved just private parties, and some courts may find that in those narrow cases, the debts are dischargeable. But beyond that, it's very difficult to tell. Then you have the problem of multiple overlapping proceedings where fees get lumped together without any description, and it's difficult to tell there as well. So those are the real problems, I think, now with implementing this standard. And I do think that, you know, a few courts have parsed those sentencing orders and tried to really look at what might be dischargeable and what might not be. But it does take a really strong advocate to pursue that and a judge who's willing to look for that uh, because with the push and need for counties and states to fund their criminal justice systems, more and more fees and fines are being added to these sentencing orders. And I just named a few uh, earlier that just have no relation to the actual crime um, or defendant, but they're added because uh, these counties need to fund those certain provisions somehow. And so they're added to these sentencing orders. And I think that's what makes it really hard uh, to parse out which ones are potentially dischargeable and which ones really are not, because it's kind of a kitchen sink um, situation now where these sentencing orders are quite long. And in our article, we provide some examples of what these might be. I'm curious that if your solution were adopted, that um, we will sort of um, separately describe revenue generating fees from sort of penalties um, that, you know, do you think that uh, states and localities might simply stop assessing separate childcare facility fees and just say the penalty for shoplifting is $3,000? I think that could happen. I think that some states and counties are desperate for for money. And, you know, these the criminal justice system. And you said earlier uh, that we propose bankruptcy as a solution to the issues. Well, it's not a solution at all. This is a humongous issue. Um, the the whole criminal justice system needs a complete reevaluation and overhaul. Uh, And so this is just a tiny little thing that could be done to help uh, people who get caught up in the criminal justice system. And so, you know, that's all to say that it's just a much bigger problem than, than we can even talk about in, in this podcast, obviously, but even in an article. So, so, you know, I just, I just wanted to make 
that caveat clear. And I see Jeff wanting to say something. I was just going to add add that the point that you're bringing up is exactly why I think that we need this other provision that would provide for the automatic time-based discharge of something, even though it is labeled as specifically a penalty or a fine. So if, if the response is to double or triple what the current fines and penalties are for a particular offense, the safety valve would be to have this automatic discharge after a period of time. The state could try to collect it for that period of time, right. and they might be able to from somebody who could afford it. Right. That makes sense. Um, so uh, I want to come back to the Kelly discussion, Jeff, that, that you, uh, you mentioned earlier. You know, so I'm... Um, as someone who watches the court now, you know, uh, Justice Kagan says we're all textualists now. And so when I read Kelly, like this decisions, like, where does this come from? Um, and I'm curious what you think about about that, you know, given that you, you suggested, I think, that uh, Kelly sort of unmoored from the statutory language. Um, if you pursued an appeal um, up to the court uh, today, do you think you'd get a different result? No, that's why we think it has to be changed by legislation. We, we don't think we'd get a different result now. Um, and, and kind of going back to Kelly again, I think that our basic point is that Kelly was a policy decision. It was not based on the text of the code. And the big problem is that the policy rationale that the court relied on back in 1981 really doesn't apply anymore. Um, it was the policy rationale was that encouraging the non-dischargeability of fines and penalties would protect the public, it would deter crime, and it would further rehabilitation. And all the evidence of everything that's happened in the criminal justice system since 1981 has shown that these excessive fines and fees and penalties don't help public safety. Um, they, they distract how law enforcement is being allocated. We have police becoming, you know, basically revenue generators try, that are really um, charged with trying to assess as many fees and penalties as they can to help their local government. And they're not, that, that, that distorts primary functions of law enforcement in, in the public safety area. It's also undermining trust in government. I think that, you know, we have case law going back to the 1920s where you have the, that famous case coming out of Ohio from the 1920s where you would have the mayor in the town bring people in for violation of the prohibition laws and he would get a $12 cut every time he convicts somebody. And that was held back in the 1920s to conflict with due process and it creates it really furthers distrust of the criminal justice system where the public has a general sense that the people enforcing the laws have a kind of pecuniary interest in assessing as, as great a fines as they can against them. So it's, it's not encouraged. uh, It's not protected public safety. And in terms of rehabilitation, it really has the effect of, preventing people from from getting jobs, from getting housing, from getting transportation, and from participating in the the normal 
workforce for very extended periods of time. And there's a cost to that. There's a cost to having millions of people who can't work and can't function normally in a work environment. So we think that, you know, when you really go back to the policy reasons that the court relied on to avoid the text in the bankruptcy code, those policy reasons have really been undermined by subsequent developments. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, we've also seen that it doesn't just affect the individuals who are burdened with this debt, but it affects their families and their communities. And, you know, we see that uh, African-American women are most likely to carry this burden, this debt and pay this debt um, for their partners who are convicted of the crime. And so that trickles down to the entire family. And so burdening, you know, the mother of, of young children with this debt on top of everything she's doing to try and struggle to get by, um, it, it just has this disproportionate effect and really needs evaluation, needs to be reevaluated because, you know, what Kelly was decided on and the time that Kelly was decided is very different from now after, you know, the war on drugs and mass incarceration and a huge disproportionate effect on communities of color that has occurred since Kelly was decided. It does need a reevaluation, but I agree. I don't think the court would come down any differently. And that is why legislation is really needed for this. Well, you, you convinced me that uh, the policy rationales underlying Kelly don't hold anymore. And so then my question really is, um, why not go further? Why not strike 523A7 entirely? Um, right? If, if, like, is there any policy justification for keeping the, um, the non-dischargeability, at least some piece of it? I think, I th- I think the policy rationale would... would... I think in order to have some some likelihood of, of passage, and a, I'm looking at it, we're looking at it, I think, more from a practical point of view. I think that, I mean, one problem with all of these issues is that criminal justice law tends to, particularly in the political field, it's responding to emotions more than it is to rational arguments, and some of those emotion, some of those emotional beliefs are so strong that I, I don't think you can, I don't think you convince, you could convince a, a majority of legislatures that um, punishing people by making them pay something for what they did to harm somebody it is, that that's an appropriate thing to do to some extent. If somebody can afford to pay for the harm that they've caused to another person, I, I think that there are, it's, it's reasonable to say that the state should have some interest in in making them do that. Um, I think the question comes down to much more how you determine when someone, when it's really effective in the sense that someone can afford to pay the fines. I, I don't, I think that if someone has engaged in massive white collar fraud and defrauded people of millions of dollars and they're living in the Cayman Islands and you can get them to pay that, um, th- th- there should be a way to make them pay it. Um, so the question really comes down, I think, to how you can develop an effective system that will 
separate out those who can afford to pay for the harm that they've caused other people from those who really can't. And we come, what we come back to is we think that some of the guidelines that have been built into the bankruptcy code, specifically after the 2005 amendments, where there's a means testing aspect built into the code now, um, that's going to prevent somebody who really has the ability to pay from accessing these discharge opportunities. If they have, you know, the million dollar houses that aren't exempt, they're not going to be filing a chapter seven case. If they have six figure incomes, they're not going to be filing under chapter 13 because the court's going to make them pay that to creditors. So we think that there is a a valid system built in there that meets that concern that, I think the public very generally ha- genuinely has that people who can afford to pay something um, should be able, should be required to do that. the The other point that I, I don't think we've we've made yet that is worth mentioning is that there are other some other provisions in the bankruptcy code that make debts certain other debts non dischargeable that are related to this type of conduct. Um, there are provisions in the bankruptcy code under sections 523A2 and A6 that make non-dischargeable debts that were incurred through fraud and debts that were incurred by reason of willful and malicious injury to other people and to property. So if you got away with, if you you put aside the criminal justice non-dischargeability provisions entirely. Someone, for example, who was harmed through a domestic violence incident or maybe by consumer fraud, by um, a a criminal enterprise that was defrauding large numbers of consumers, uh, those individuals could still have these debts declared non-dischargeable under those other provisions. And I, I think that's something that's worth keeping in mind. Thank you. Andrea? Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, following up on Jeff's comment that we have to be practical about what we ask for in our policy requests that, you know, keep in mind the last significant change to the bankruptcy law was in 2005. And that was very creditor friendly. Uh, And you can see the creditor opposition to the Nadler Warren bill has been fierce. And, you know, that. The, the Nadler-Warren bill wants to do some things that are quite beneficial to consumers, not out of bounds, but for example, you know, allow somebody whose house is underwater to cram the value of that house down to the market value of, of the property. Um, you know, that's not revolutionary, but there's huge opposition to that. The financial institutions and, you know, creditors and lenders are just going crazy over that. And, you know, so the the opposition um, just to some of the provisions we're seeing in the Nadler Warren bill can tell us that we, you know, if we want a chance of having something pass, it's going to be beneficial, but also very practical and realistic that we have to take these that into consideration as well. 
I absolutely hear you. I have to say my own inclinations fall on the incremental improvement side often. Um, that said, I've been really interested to see what's happened in the student loan space that uh, these very vocal critics of anything other than total student loan forgiveness in some ways to me seem to have made space for the new student loan proposal to come off as more moderate, um, even though it's the largest student loan forgiveness uh, we've had. And so um I'm, yeah, I'm really interested in this sort of, you know, I agree that, you know, a more modest solution is maybe more politically viable, uh, but also cognizant of, you know, sort of um, advocates being able to sort of, you know, expand the, the window of what we think of as possible. Um, um, all right. Well, that was the questions that I had. I want to sort of, uh, before we leave off, though, I want to make sure that you have a chance to say, you know, um, what, what, what didn't I ask you? Are there things you want to make sure that listeners, uh, listeners have a chance to know about this topic? One other thing that I just wanted to mention that I don't think we mentioned was to go back to the the chapter 13 bankruptcies. You know, they're the, they're the cases where an individual can file a bankruptcy case and then propose a plan to pay their disposable income for three to five years and then get a discharge of their debts. And I think it's important to keep in mind that up until 1994, basically, Um, criminal fines and penalties were fully dischargeable in Chapter 13 cases. So it it was very palatable to, I think, most Americans up to that point to have a system in effect where somebody who, if an individual goes through this procedure where they're willing to submit themselves to a bankruptcy court for up to five years, have the courts scrutinize their financial affairs and make sure that they're paying everything they can to their creditors for five years should be entitled to a broad discharge of their debts and a fresh start. And, you know, a lot of what we're proposing would really just be going back to the state of affairs as they existed up until the early 1990s, which was not that long ago, where um, somebody who could demonstrate that they were making an effort to pay what they could for a fixed period of time should be entitled to the discharge of these debts, even though they're arising out of a criminal conviction. I did just want to promote the National Consumer Law Center a little bit, um, that we're a nonprofit organization that's been around since 1969. We have a great set of manuals, Uh, that we have one on consumer bankruptcy. We have a whole series of manuals to help advocates and practitioners who are trying to help consumers. We have listservs. We engage in policy and advocacy around energy utility issues, um, you know, loan servicing, uh, debt collection. So we engage in a lot of of work to help low-income consumers Uh, And we have tons of resources available for others who are trying to do that as well. And so we hope that you'll visit our website at nclc.org. I just sent one of my research assistants to to read one of your consumer law manuals this week. Great. Thank you. Thank you. you. Well, thank you for writing them. Um, All right. This has been Matthew Bruckner uh, talking with Andrea Bob Stark and Jeff Wallace, both staff attorneys at NCLC, about their work on fines and fees and bankruptcy and how to reform the system. Thank you so much for joining me.
wanted to get married. They say it's awfully nice. Ah! I asked my dad the experiences he had, and this was his advice. There's a bill for the license and the wedding ring. There's a bill for the preacher when he ties the string. And when you're back from the honeymoon and everything, it's bills, bills, bills. There's a bill for the mortgage on the bungalow, for the gas and the water and the radio. And it may be summer, but it keeps on snowing. Bills, bills, bills. Just when you get a breathing spell. And your pocketbook relaxes. There's the social security, municipal tax, and federal income taxes. There's a bill for the plumber and the milkman who have to wait like the butcher and the baker too. Who cares if there's a million or two bills, bills, bills to pay? I'll file them in the fireplace today. There's a bill for the little things that Ethel buys, like a mink or a Cadillac to match her eyes. When she says to me, "Harm, I've a big surprise." It's bills, bills, bills. For my wife plays gymnasta. It's a small affair. Every girl from Chicago to New York is there, and I sit in the corner playing solitaire with bills, bills, bills. My bookie has my house and car. I wish he had my troubles. Silspell, Mountain Aqueduct, and Tropical Park, and Hollywood Daily Doubles. There are bills from the attic to the cellar door. There's a wolf waiting for me at the kitchen door. Who cares if there's a million or more bills, bills, bills to pay? I re-enlisted in the army today.